Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa, but not with Deirdre Bosa, unfortunately. Carl is off. Today, bottoms up. One top strategist says the correction is over. Is now the time to get back in on growth. And then no more legacy letdown. Why one guest is touting Cisco, Dell, and the HPs as his top picks. Later, GameStop, Goldmine, or Sweaty. We look at the prospects after disappointing earnings. D. Miss you and the team already, John. Uh, This morning, we're going to start with real stocks. The Nasdaq trying for a four-day win streak on pace for its best week in a year. We are still 15% below all-time highs, however. J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic calling the bottom, saying now is the time to start adding risk in many areas that have seen sharp declines. He adds the correction in bubble sectors is now likely finished. He's not the only one either. Tech investor Jim Breyer was on closing bell yesterday and says he's adding exposure. Take a listen particularly Microsoft, Apple, Google, sit at the heart of what will be the next generation of AI and quantum opportunities. And so on weakness, I continue to add all three to the portfolio. What I would also say in the private world, we spend so much time doing analysis of management teams and leaders. And so as long as Tim Cook and Satya and other leaders are running the companies, Uh, I'm a long-term buyer and holder. These are some of the best executives in the world, and they are recruiting some of the best AI and quantum talent in the world. So Breyer is adding, on the other hand, how about Eminence Capital's Ricky Sandler saying the selling is not over? We've definitely corrected some meaningful amount of where the exuberance was. Um, I personally don't think it's over. I I don't think that we have cleaned out all of the uh, excessive optimism on companies that are growing uh, just top line, but not profits or companies that have large TAMs, but, but difficult um, uh, paths to attack those TAMs. So, so I, I think we've, we've had a good amount of the damage, but I don't think we're done with it. So Sandler said that he's buying names like Coupa and Salesforce at these levels. John, it's pretty remarkable to see the Nasdaq is up nearly 7% this week. Uh, Three days of gains as investors feeling good. Maybe we'll make it four. Yeah. When you look at that chart for the full year, though, and we're not that far into the year, it's still kind of sobering. And, you know, I'm not sure those two guys were disagreeing very much at all. Right. I mean, long-term buyer and holder. In this market, I think some investors have gotten used to thinking of long-term as being, what, like two weeks? <laughs> right? But if you're buying here, you might have to be prepared for more downdraft and have to hold on for years, right? Like, you remember the early 2000s, mid-2000s, 
there were some really good companies mm-hmm. uh, post the dot com shakeout that took a long time uh, to start really showing in the stock what they were already accomplishing in revenue and earnings. I point to, I mean, now Microsoft is a darling. It can do no wrong. But Microsoft (laughs) in the Steve Ballmer years was actually growing earnings and revenue, growing up in enterprise business. Satya Nadella was standing up what would be the cloud, and they got zero credit for it in the stock. Yes. And I know we talk a lot about the long term, but a lot of these companies could get washed out as well. And I guess we go back to this question, John, is where do or where does the multiple settle? Right. Our software companies valued at eight times revenue, 12, 15, 20. Even if you're long term, they could never make back those levels. It's possible. It is possible. And I think you got to be prepared to have conviction that even if the stock price is telling you that you're wrong about certain companies, you believe in certain trends, you know, the the, the very kinds of technologies that we've been talking about this week on Tech Check. If you believe that these are the future, Jim Breyer was bringing this up, and you see evidence Mm -hmm. in the company's products and in their earnings reports that they're making progress on those, sometimes you're going to have to hold your nose. But we're not used to that in this market. We might be heading into a time when investors have to get used to it again. Yeah, and and figure out the platforms from the features, right? That's a lot of what we talk about in the pandemic. We saw this digital transformation, but who's going to actually move beyond it and continue to grow? So there's a context, John. But we also, of course, need to ask, where is the opportunity? So names like Snowflake, Shopify, Robinhood, even Peloton, they're all up more than 20% this week. But can you trust this bounce? It is nuanced, as we've been talking about. Crossmark Global Investment CIO Bob Dole is with us. Bob, good morning to you, and it's great to have you. We just had this long discussion on a bottom. What are you looking at right now, especially when it comes to some of those high growth momentum names? I think the two gents you had on are not disagreeing. The demarcation line for me is, is the company generating earnings and cash flow now, or are they going to do, you know, three to five to 10 years from now? The latter group got hurt really hard as interest rates began moving up. They're long-duration stocks, just like a long-duration bond. And believing interest rates and inflation are going to continue to go higher, I'm leery about that side. The big darlings, my, my favorite is Google, but I like others as well. But then there's another group of tech stocks. I'll call them the old tech stocks. Hmm. I own some of them, too. They're not the brightest lights, but their stocks have behaved so much better than yeah. a lot of the names we tend to talk about. I'm talking about Intel and Cisco, uh, names, even IBM uh, has been uh, down much less than the market so far this year. Yeah, you're talking about the legacy sort of value tech names that have performed better. But let's go back to Gunlack's comments earlier this week, where he said that the NASDAQ is not a long-term bet. And when you look at these legacy names like an IBM, like a Cisco, they really have not gone anywhere for a very long time. So long-term, Bob, is there an argument to be made that perhaps maybe it's not the NASDAQ anymore? Where do you stand there on that? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I am not making the case that IBM should be in your portfolio for the next 10 years. Don't get me wrong. But I think in an environment where we are a bit more defensive, where we're expecting interest rates to go up, you really have to be careful of valuation. Unlike when interest rates were zero, essentially, for so long, um, the sky is the limit. So, yeah, I, I want to own these companies that are really making a difference. Uh, Google's on this list. Microsoft's on that list. Bob Dole, what are the, uh, the strategies and the assets 
that are so important that it's worth investing in them, even if they're not profitable right now. So I think about Amazon 20 years ago that was growing quickly and reinvesting in uh, the, the supply chain, the logistics network, turned out to be worth it. What about the likes of uh, MongoDB growing the Atlas database business, really making strong progress, but it falls into that category you're talking about of they're not churning out uh, profits on a gap basis? Yeah, I, I, think the, I think the dynamics of the capital markets are going to work against those companies for a while here uh, as investors come to adjust to Interest rates are going up all the way all the way over the curve, it would seem. So no matter how good that company is, they really have a headwind that they didn't have in the last 20 years. Amazon didn't have that headwind. Um, they watched interest rates as they came to be a household word until recently go straight down, which means multiples uh, went straight up. So I want to play where the earnings and the cash flow, I can touch it now. But does that mean stay away from those names entirely or does it just mean be careful with them? Be careful, own less of them than you did before. Or, or said differently, if you looked at my, my uh, tech portfolio a year ago, it was heavy growth and not much value. It's far more balanced now. Uh, some of those names I mentioned, again, I'm not making the case that, that they're going to drive productivity and technology for the next decade, but they're going to be players. And I think we have to figure out where's the productivity going to come from that's going to enable the U.S. economy with mm -hmm. uh, not much population growth to really be a growth company. And that's where you get to the cloud and parts of software, a wide mm -hmm. area networks. So the things are going to grow. Yeah, that secular shift that we talk about often with the CEOs of these companies. Bob, um, I know that you've added to your Amazon position, but you still think that it's going to underperform the benchmark. Um, we've already seen it underperform the benchmark, and there's been so much investment going into the company. You don't think they're going to see the fruits of that this year? Well, I think it'll be better, but they, ha they have some reproving to do after a particularly tough second half. As you know, that stock lagged horribly last year, and in the down market, it's lagged again. So I'm going to be patient. I have added to it on weakness, um, and I'm going to wait to get to a market or overweight till I have more confidence that the business is going to turn. Um, finally, Bob, I saw in your note that you said the war in Ukraine is a boost for the dollar due to safe haven assets, uh, safe haven flows into U.S. assets. But is there an argument to be made, as some are, that over the long term, we may actually see the dollars decline because of other countries like China seeing sort of the weaponization of it and the rise of things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? I fully agree with that. That is to say, when this war passes and the safe haven status of the dollar is not as important, I think we will see dollar weakness and strength uh, elsewhere. Wow. OK, Bob, thanks for the uh, clear answer there. Bob Dahl, we'll talk to you again soon. All the best. Bye bye. Turning now to Apple, COVID shutdowns and disruptions in China have highlighted the risk to many tech companies and their supply chains in Asia, reminiscent of the trade war narrative during the Trump administration. Our Steve Kovac is with us examining the question, how reliant is Apple on its Asian supply chain? Steve, what do you say? Yeah, that's right, John. I mean, we saw that this week with the shutdown in Shenzhen and setting this wave of worry throughout uh, Apple investors and analysts saying, how big of a deal is this and how exposed are they in China? Well, it turns out they were able to kind of shift production around and this shutdown is only expected to last a week. But it really got me thinking like, hey, Tim Cook just talked about this on his last earnings call. He was asked, are you too exposed in China? Are you too at risk? And he had a pretty good answer. He's like, no, we're not 
uh, I, he's very happy with how things are because basically with all the production there in China and where his suppliers are located, he's telling us, look, I can move stuff around and it's going to be okay when these shutdowns go away or, and, and subside. For investors to remember the difference between uh, the supply chain and where assembly is happening. That's right. right? And, and the fact that Apple has a very diversified supply chain, but we like to focus on how much assembly particularly of the iPhone, is happening in China and Shenzhen. But, you know, you, you look at the new Macs that came out, the, the Mac Studios. Right. You see some of them, right, assembled in Malaysia. Uh, you know, they, they have lots of different assembly, and they have weeks of inventory and, and some cushion built in, right? Yeah, and that's exactly right, John. You took the words right out of my mouth. That, that new Mac Studio made in Malaysia. Uh, AirPods are increasingly being made in Vietnam. And then we know they've tried stuff in, uh, to build some iPhones, some of the lower-end models in places like Brazil and India to varying degrees of success. But again, it's all based in China, and it's just that geographic closeness to where the suppliers are and to where these things are actually put together. Now, at the same time, there are a lot of other consumer technology players that do have more concentration in China in particular, and they're not anywhere near as big as Apple, so they might not have as much leverage over their supply chains, over different ways to, to push flexibility and get product out. So maybe even though Apple gets the focus, because it's Apple, there are actually some other names uh, in the, the sector that we should be more concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of it's not the most consumer technology name ever, but I mean, Tesla, Tesla had to shut down its Shanghai factory for a couple of days this week because of these COVID outbursts. So, I mean, look, as COVID keeps spreading around and if we see another spike as we're seeing data come out in Europe and else in Asia and elsewhere, like there's this fear of the shutdowns. But let's rewind the clock, John, to 2020 when the entire country of China was shut down and Apple was still able to get its iPhone 12 out just a month late. Well, Steve, thank you very much for the breakdown. Important to keep watching the supply chain. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Still ahead, GameStop investors need consoling. FedEx doesn't deliver and congressional bulls run rampant in the China shop. Tech Check is just getting started. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. check on FedEx. The miss on earnings beat on revenue. Worker shortages during the height of Omicron having an impact on that bottom line. But here is the key from the call. Quote, the big period of growth in e-commerce is behind us. So we are not counting on huge consumer spend in our numbers. Shares are taking a tumble this morning, down more than 4%. Still down double digits for the year, John. Yeah. And here's a company who hopes it's ahead. Ah, Big miss for GameStop this morning. It is down... Let's see. I just lost the chart, so I'm not sure. Uh, up. It's up. All right. Well, good. It's up. It's up <laughs> almost 4%. Um, so there you go. Reporting an unexpected quarterly loss on an earnings call that lasted 11 minutes. CEO Matt Furlong said mistakes over the past decade have left the company capital starved and ready to embrace new frontiers of gaming. Frontiers that include a new NFT marketplace and Web3. Irreverent Lab CEO Raul Sood, a uh, longtime investor, founder in the gaming space, joins us now. Rahul, welcome. And you're actually building a gaming company in the space where GameStop says they want to dominate. What's it going to take for them to do it? Uh, man, it's going to take a, a, a miracle, actually. It's, it's, it's really, it's an amazing space. But l- l- let me just be clear. There's a, there's a meaningful divide between traditional gamers, which is basically all of GameStop's customers and, and Web3 gaming. Um, there is a little bit of an intersection overlap, but, you know, unless they, they hire some unbelievable talent, which is going to be very difficult for them to do, um, it's, uh, it's, it's just going to be really hard for them to bridge the gap. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. No, so I keep hearing about a, a real disconnect in the traditional gaming market between uh, people, often companies, that want to introduce NFTs into existing properties and gamers who are saying, no way, keep that stuff away from me. So a lot of that, as you mentioned, is probably part of GameStop's customer base. How do they reconcile the two? Well, I, I think the, 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 the way that we reconcile it anyways and, and, and the way that maybe GameStop could is it's, it's really about educating these uh, the, the gamers about what the promise of NFT gaming could actually bring. And it really has to do with ownership, ownership of your characters uh, in a game, for example. Um, you know, I play a lot of games. I play a lot of League of Legends, but I have no emotional attachment to any of the characters in the game. And, um, you know, you spend a lot of time playing games. So why not be able to spend time playing games and, and have ownership of, you know, your characters and, and build a bond with them over time? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's not GameStop's strategy. I mean, GameStop is talking about, you know, building an NFT marketplace, which is a, which is a pretty, you know, like rich kind of everyone wants to do strategy. Yeah. There's, it's not a real strategy. And um, Nicole, exactly. Why would someone go to GameStop for their NFT marketplace versus a Coinbase, which has its own ambitions in this space, versus a company that maybe we don't know about yet is being built in someone's basement that has a lot more expertise in this area? Why would it be GameStop if there's going to be sort of a few big platforms in the future? 
Well, as an example, GameStop recently did a deal with Immutable X, which is a layer two Ethereum blockchain. Um, and, uh, and they took 50 million off the table, by the way, of that deal. It's about a third of the, the coins that they were given. Um, if they really were serious about getting into gaming, they probably would have done something with Solana instead. And I would say that um, you're absolutely right. Like, how does GameStop compete with with, with Coinbase? Or, you know, w- w- like in, in the space of gaming, there's other marketplaces. There's there's Magic Eden, which is which is massive. And there's Fractal AI, uh, which was started by the creator of Twitch. Um, you know, they could go and try and make an acquisition in the space. But, you know, it's 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 going to be really difficult to get uh, talented people in the space right. to want to work for GameStop. Right. I, I don't know, you know, how else to put it. Uh, I'm trying to be nice about it, but it's it's hard, right? Well, you're being you're being blunt, though, Rahul. And I, I haven't checked my Twitter comments right now as we talk about this, but I wonder: um, does is GameStop in danger of losing its sort of meme stock status? I know the stock has turned around, which is interesting, but not even taking questions on the earnings call last night. How can you claim to sort of be in tune with the retail investor when you're not even doing that? Yeah. So look, you know, the the I think the meme stock. Or like the whole meme stock thing is is over. I I, I think it's you know like get, GameStop was able to break three hundred dollars because of a massive coordinated short squeeze and very specific market conditions. Um, you know, with with retail investors who really didn't think too far into the future. I think they've done at least two secondary offerings since then. I don't know how many, but at least two. Um, and 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 so you know, meme stock is is to me it's over. Um, I I think now they have to figure out what you know, they have to basically put up or shut up. They have to build a real business. Um, You know, and when I, when I, when I look at their market cap, I think it's around $6 billion. I mean, you know, ApeCoin is is, is almost worth $6 billion today and it just started yesterday. So who knows? Like, I I just, I I just have to say that um, they have a challenge. Very quickly workshop this with us though. How would it be done. Let's say let's take Nintendo, right? Because they've got notoriously great IP in gaming. Let's say Nintendo goes into NFTs. But of course there's only one Mario, so you can't like buy Mario. Um so what how do they do it? What are they selling? Are they selling Mario cards by the year, a certain number connected to certain games, Mario in the cart versus Mario jumping over a mushroom? How, how do you how do you create in this space if you own your IP like you said an NFT system and then marketplace that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I can, I can just talk about like how, how we think about it and, and the way we think about it is you, you, you don't want to build a monolithic game because, you know, building a monolithic game is, it takes years. Uh, it's, um, it, it requires, you know, a lot of like, like work and storytelling and, 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 and years of development before you even launch. Um, the beauty of web three is uh, you can you can create like a series of say say mini games, which is what we're doing over top of of, of uh, layers of, of of beautiful art, um, you know, beautiful characters, uh, AI. We're, we're using AI to create you know automated characters in the game. Um, we're using and we're building economies uh, that that are designed to last a hundred years uh, over top of these these mini games. I guess what I'm saying is they need a completely different look at gaming. In general, so in the case of Mario Kart, you know th- th- they could, for example, you know sell different types of carts that look different or that sort of thing. Um, they could create sort of different abilities with those carts or, or different different statistics with those carts potentially. Um, 
you know, if you think if you think about the 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 potential with Pokemon in a Web three world, it's massive. Yeah, you, you really, really it. it it, it takes a lot more than sort of five minutes to discuss this, but, <laughs> yes. but, but, but there's a ton of opportunity with, with uh, you know, taking some of those Web 2 ideas and bringing them into a Web 3 world. And a lot of people drop though, yeah. we, only, we only had five minutes, but the conversation will continue. Clearly, you're illustrating it's harder than it looks. It's going to take more than a quarter. Rahul Sood, thank you. Thank you. And you know, John, cart selection is very important in the game. So I hear what he's saying. <laughs> After the break, one analyst calls the bottom on value. We're talking Cisco, IBM, HP, and more. That's what Bob Dahl told us as well. We are back in just a moment. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Yusha Bosa and Julia Borston. Take a look at the biggest winners on the NASDAQ 100 this week. Chinese tech leading the way for once as the NDX looks to notch its best week in more than a year. We'll have more on U.S. senators investing in Chinese markets in a few minutes. But right now, time for a news update. Rahel Solomon has it. Hey, Rahel. Hi, John. Yes, I do. Here's what's happening at this hour. Existing home sales falling faster than expected in February. They dropped 7.2 percent on an annual basis. Now, despite the drop, supplies of homes on the market remain very low, enough for just 1.7 months of sales. And with demand still high, the median home price is up 15 percent over the last year. It is now more than three hundred and fifty seven thousand dollars. Nickel prices plummeting again on the London Metal Exchange. The metal sank 12 percent even after trading bans were expanded. It was the third day of limit down trading. It was also another day of technical problems at the LME, with some trades falling below trading limits. The LME says that those trades will be canceled. And Burger King's calls to close its 800 stores in Russia going unheeded. The company says that its franchisee is refusing to do so. Burger King says that it would need the help of the Russian government to close those restaurants Something that is obviously not going to happen. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. So can you trust the bounce? We talked about where to find value at the top of the show. Our next guest argues that you should look at, quote unquote, safer companies with higher dividend yields and buybacks through the end of the year, pointing to stocks like Akamai and Dell. Joining us now is Evercore ISI's Amit Dariani. Amit, it's great to have you. Is this a bet on innovation or a bet on balance sheets and what looks to be, you know, it's likely to be a tougher year for those high growth stocks that have less profitable business models. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a bet on balance sheets. And I would say companies that are going to use their balance sheet to 
you know, shareholder-friendly transactions and they kind of stock price, right? So I think if you look at it from a historical perspective, names like Dell, names like Akuma have done really well. Uh, yeah, I'll throw it, Apple actually has performed exceptionally well through past recessions now. It remains to be seen if they do that again this time because historically, Apple, for example, traded more like a hardware company. Today, trades at something much better than that. So we'll have to see if it does better through this recession. But I do think companies with a better balance sheet that are using it for buybacks for dividends are poised to do well right. through what seems like a very volatile year. And the key word here seems safe. Our earlier guest, Bob Dahl, was saying, was agreeing with you here and that these are better names to bet on in what could be a turbulent year. But um, you're not making any huge bets here. Is that because you think that growth names are going to continue to get hit? Yeah, I mean, you know, to some extent, I think the issue is as, as rates keep going up, as you know, interest rates keep going up, uh, the higher growth assets will have a tougher time justifying these valuations that are really pegged on you know, severely out there your profitable, profitability metrics, if you may, right? Uh, so I think it's more challenging. How do you defend the other end of that bell curve versus the value names that are perhaps easier to defend? The dividend yields are easier to defend for this tape. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think is going to actually do well um, on balance sheet wise, but is going to be unpopular perhaps in the market? That, that space where people aren't going to be excited about it, but probably they should be. Yeah, boy, the space we're not excited about. Listen, I, I, I think the legacy hardware names, right, if I could use that as a bucket, uh, you know, names like a Cisco or Dell uh, that people have sort of shied away from in the past could do a lot better. Uh, you know, they have a more stable demand platform at this point versus not, and they certainly have a very strong balance sheet that they could start using for shareholder-friendly transactions. Uh, to some degree, I also think you know, this is the time where, you could see companies either innovate or acquire innovation by using the balance sheet. Uh, um, you know, so to a company like Apple, for example, um, in theory, innovate a lot more through this recession than they typically have. Could someone like Cisco do the same? So I think those are the other names that we could see do really well through this time frame. Do you expect to see M&A? Uh, you talk about the companies that are maybe going to do well but, but not be that popular. Could there be M&A among smaller enterprise names that perhaps investors tend not to pay attention to, but should because they could get some kind of a premium uh, once the bigger names go shopping? Uh, you know, I'd say, I'd say absolutely, right? If you look at a Cisco, for example, that is sitting on a really big pile of cash right now um, and, you know, doesn't really seem to be doing a whole lot in terms of the buyback momentum, uh, you could see them step up on the M&A side. They've historically been very valuation disciplined, uh, certainly the correction in high growth assets could open up the lens for them to go out and do transactions. I could see, you know, someone like Dell or even HP start to get more aggressive. So these companies have the balance sheet. Um, some, I think, will use it to do deals. Others will use it to return it to their shareholders. Amit, looking in the longer term, past 12 months, let's say, do you have to be a bit careful with these names? You talk about hardware, but I wonder, is this a sector that is disrupted by the metaverse and an expected Apple mixed reality headset? You know, um, to, to, to some extent, yes. I mean, these are cyclical assets that tend to be challenged um, on, on, a, on a secular level, right? Um, so you do have to be careful with these things. Now, what I would argue, though, is, you know, some of these markets like PCs, for example, or even networking, uh, you know, on PCs, I think the use and relevance of PCs has gone up dramatically. Uh, you know, my 11 and 9-year-old daughters that use computers at school will probably never stop using it. So I think you've actually expanded the TAM a bit more than people give it credit for. Uh, and on that side, on the networking side, right, companies like Cisco, Arista, uh, 
offices are not geared up for all of us returning back to work and still running Zoom the way we will. Uh, and so you could have a pretty good investment cycle that happens on the networking side uh, over the next few years as we go back to work. Amit, thank you for your insights as always. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Huge theme this week and really over the last few months. Uh, but this week, we've seen the ramp in Chinese shares of Internet stocks like Alibaba and Tencent. The K-Web is up 40 percent since Tuesday's open. And it turns out members of Congress might be benefiting as well. Our Elon Moy has that story. Elon. Yeah, Deirdre, Washington may be at odds with Beijing, but that hasn't stopped Congress from investing in China. Our CNBC analysis of financial disclosures show that lawmakers and their spouses and children have traded $5.6 million in Chinese stocks and funds during the session of Congress, including names like Alibaba and Tencent. Now, Republicans are the biggest traders, buying and selling $4.6 million. Most of that was reported by one lawmaker, Representative Michael McCall. He is the ranking member of the House Foreign Relations Committee and chairman of the GOP's China Task Force. Now, his disclosures show the trades were carried out by his wife and child, though his office has not answered our request for comment. On the Democratic side, what we see is that total activity clocked in at 982,000. The biggest trader there was Representative Elaine Luria of Virginia. Now, she sold between $250,000 and $500,000 of Alibaba stock a year ago through a joint account. At the time, those shares were trading at about $227. Well, they've fallen off since then and are now around about 105 bucks. We reached out to Representative Luria's office for comment but have not heard back yet. Guys, we have even more details coming up next hour in the Halftime Report. Back over to you. Elon, uh, do you expect that this is a new front in political discourse? Who's buying and selling Chinese stocks? I don't remember that being as much an issue before, but is this campaign ad fodder for midterms? (laughs) Well, absolutely. I think partly because you're not always seeing the rhetoric match the investment, right? Some of these uh, lawmakers, especially Representative McCall, are big China hawks and have talked about Mm -hmm. the need to distance ourselves economically for China, put America first, et cetera. So that could be one reason why you could see this sort of bubble up as a potential campaign issue. But more broadly, there's been a lot of momentum around some bills to ban lawmaker trading of individual stocks. We will see where that goes in the future. But a lot of the debate is also centered around, should this just be applied mm-hmm. to a lawmaker, a member of Congress, or to their family as well? Yeah, it's certainly certainly a big question, Elon. When it comes to Chinese stocks, it's so interesting because you have what the U.S. can do, but you also have what Beijing can do, which U.S. lawmakers, even people in China, have really no way of knowing. Is there any data as to how these trades have actually performed? I know you gave one example with Alibaba. What about some of the others? Yeah, you know, what we see overall is that lawmakers don't seem to be any better than the rest of us at (laughs) potentially picking some stocks. It's hard to know, especially on the sales, um, how they perform, because we don't know the basis. We don't know when they bought. But certainly Mm -hmm. some of the stocks that they have sold have gone on to reach even higher highs later on. So maybe they left some money on the table there. What lawmakers are in meme stocks? That's what I want to know, Elon. No, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Elon Moy, thank you. That's the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As we head to break... Let's check on shares of Meta. That's the Facebook parent. You can see that they're up uh, just over 2%. An Australian regulator suing, saying the company didn't do enough to shield users from scam ads targeting crypto, many of which contained quotes 
from famous figures, even politicians. A spokesperson assuring users they're all over it, saying, quote, we don't want ads seeking to scam people out of money or mislead people on Facebook. Read more about the story on CNBC.com. Tech Check. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Quite a few people left the workforce during the pandemic, a phenomenon sometimes called the Great Resignation. Women in particular left their jobs, but now it might lead to a boom in entrepreneurship as they start new businesses. Julia Borston has that story. Hey, Julia. Well, John, over the past 18 months, women did leave the job market in droves and women's participation in the workforce hit its lowest level in decades. But many women who rejected corporate structures and their failure to support them are actually starting their own companies. Now, the number of active female business owners plummeted in the early months of the pandemic. But take a look at that chart. It quickly rebounded and actually outpaced male business owners during the economic recovery. The number of women who own businesses is up 2% from before the pandemic. It was up as much as 4%. Well, the number of male business owners is down nearly 2%, according to census data. I spoke to one VC who is exclusively funding women entrepreneurs, Anu Dugal. She has raised over $100 million for Female Founders Fund to invest in early stage female-led companies. A lot of these women are recognizing that there are alternatives to kind of that nine to five structure that effectively can can generate, you know, a healthy amount of income. And I think that that is what ultimately is leading to more women leaving the workplace. One of the 60 companies Female Founders Fund has backed is called Glow Labs. It's a software tool for sellers on the blockchain to offer loyalty programs, and it's founded by two women who left their jobs at J.P. Morgan. We wanted to be building where the innovation was. We wanted to be on the frontier of technology, and we wanted to create the future. So we saw that the smartest people in this space were moving to Web3, crypto, the metaverse, and we wanted to jump and do that. And we felt like we couldn't hang on to our corporate job any longer. Annie Reardon and her co-founder, Renee Russo, are still very much in the minority in the world of female entrepreneurs. They are among the four women in the 23 entrepreneurs who are living in a Web3 startup house here in Los Angeles. And it's worth noting the statistics. Women raise 2% of all VC dollars. That's as of last year. So the odds are stacked against these women. But perhaps the entrepreneurship trends of the past few years, past few years will start to change those numbers. John, Deirdre? Uh, Julia, it's interesting talking about the environment for women entrepreneurs, maybe even particularly those who are raising capital and trying to do big things. Uh, uh, over the past few hours, have been a couple of tweets out, one from Mark Andreessen, um, another from Sarah Guo, talking about this insider piece on uh, Glossier's founder, uh, and, and it's, it's critical of how she tried to kind of grow the company and it didn't work out. There's some concern out there that, uh, you know, takedowns of female founders are uh, a bit in vogue. Um, is that something that you've noticed? Is that something that female founders talk about? Yeah, 100%, John. I mean, there's no doubt that female leaders of companies, especially startups, are held to different standards than their male counterparts are. And over the past two years in particular, there have been a slew of articles 
targeting female founders, doing these so-called exposés of behavior that some of the behavior is is inappropriate and is not uh, does not seem like the way a company should be run. But a lot of that behavior um, seems to be very much in line with what, say, male founders have done. I mean, a lot of people talked about the fact that, you know, people like Steve Jobs were mm-hmm. passionate and at times uh, uh, sort of hard to work for. And then you have a lot of these women who are getting ca- called out for things yeah. that seem petty. Like one of the one of the issues uh, in this article that was highlighted was that the people in the office were asked to keep a clean desk. So it doesn't really seem um, to be mm-hmm. to be worthy of that kind of criticism. And there have been a slew of these articles. And it really does seem, unfortunately, to be yet another negative trend that's creating a higher bar for these female founders. Right. And Julia, you talk about sort of funding at the early stages, and uh, you can't ignore that Bain Capital announcement from a few weeks ago announcing their crypto fund with an all-male team. So it shows you, too, at the institutional level, the larger level, um, that representation is needed. Thank you. After the break, a call on a few e-commerce names. The online retail ETF having a good week, up 14. Amazon rallying as well. Stay with us. We're back in two. For a gut check, Jeffrey's initiating on several names across e-commerce. Take a look at Stitch Fix. It gets a hold rating and a $10 price target. It's 52-week high, nearly $70. Marketing headwinds and strategy changes fueling Jeffrey's cautious outlook. Also a hold on Poshmark, but bullish on Real Real, Rent the Runway, and Farfetch. Buys on all three of those. Rent the Runway getting a $13 target. Jeffrey's projecting outsized growth post-COVID. Shares are surging this morning. We will be back in just a moment. There's been an investment boom in auto tech from electric vehicles to self-driving car technology. Embark Technology is working on software for self-driving trucks. It just released its first quarterly report since it went public via SPAC, revealing steep losses, lower than expected free cash flow. The stock has lost more than half its value since going public. Joining us now, Embark co-founder and CEO Alex Rodriguez and uh, the stock is higher this morning, I should mention, by about 20 percent. Um, Alex, thanks for being with us. So you're, you're one of this unique group of pre-revenue public companies in this era. For a long time, we didn't have smaller, earlier stage companies going public. What do you view as perhaps your unique responsibility in communicating with shareholders being at the stage you are? Yeah, I think... Uh when you look at the way that the market's been for sort of the last quarter, you've definitely seen um, sort of a secular pushback on, on growth tech and especially some of the smaller companies. Um, and now really what we're starting to see is people taking a step back and really asking where are the good companies and what are the companies that maybe went public too early. And so I think uh, you're certainly seeing a positive reaction from, from folks to Embark really starting to understand the story more. And one of the things we do pretty differently that I think is important is we've been very clear uh, over what are the actual milestones we're going to deliver over the next two years. How does that take us from where we are today to some of the most important objectives of the company? And I think we got a really good reaction from the analysts last night uh, looking at sort of that very detailed plan that we put out um, really sort of uniquely in the space. So talk about the amount of capital that you have, the rate at which you're burning it, and how confident you are uh, on your projected 
uh, increase in revenue over time? Because, I mean, the point of going public is, is to get that uh, pile of, of capital, I suppose. But now you've got to burn through it for a while. Yeah, I think going public, obviously, uh, was a big accelerator for Embark. Uh, it gave us hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to go out and continue to build the technology um, that is really going to be critical. Obviously, Embark making uh, self-driving truck technology uh, and doing so with some of the best uh, and largest carriers in the United States. And so I think that money has been hugely valuable for us. I think it puts us in a great position to deliver on the set of milestones we put out for ourselves in 2022 and beyond. Uh, and so we're certainly pretty excited yeah. about where that puts us. Alex, there weren't a lot of milestones or projections for 2022. The only things that I could really find were still some ways out 2024. And obviously you listed at a time when the markets were a lot friendlier towards SPACs and years off projections. So given the sell off that we're seeing now, particularly in your shares, even though they're up today, I wonder if any part of you wishes that you stayed public, raise money in public markets, which are also flush with cash, and figured out some of this stuff before being judged quarter to quarter? Yeah, I think we're still very happy with the decision to go public. Like I said, I think the resources that we have now are very different than what was possible before. If you look at Embark in our entire history over more than five years before going public, we spent less than $100 million building our technology. And so to have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank today, that puts us in a great position to be able to keep working. And the reality is... Uh, the markets have been in a, obviously a particularly challenging spot, um, but I think that's something that you know happens to any public tech company regardless of size. Uh, and so the goal for us is continue delivering, continue executing on those milestones. And I think over time we're already starting to see uh, sort of folks recognizing that and they'll continue to recognize that. Alex, are your employees as understanding? I mean, after sort of the celebration of raising all of this money and going public at a much higher market cap, how are they feeling? How is morale at the company? The company is really excited. I think uh, Embark is a business that's really focused on the long term. And so um, when, right when we went public, even in sort of the peak of everyone being really excited, I said, listen, guys, we're at base camp here. This is not the end. This is the beginning. Now we have the resources to go out and deliver on the mission, uh, to be able to make roads safer, to be able to make uh, people's lives better, and to be able to make drivers' jobs better. And so I think that's what we're out doing. And day-to-day, uh, -day, the employees are focused on making sure that we're continuing to execute on that. And likewise, I am. I think one of the things we talked about on the earnings call is uh, I'm not uh, taking a salary this year. Instead, we're putting that money towards robotics education for uh, kids around the world. Uh, and so I'm right there along with the employees, uh, believing the long term, focused on many years from now. In for the long haul, pun intended. Alex, thank you. <laughs> If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing, and that is the slow motion crash of so-called Q-commerce, a quick delivery commerce companies that compete with Uber Eats and DoorDash. In the last two years, a bumper crop of companies have launched in urban areas, Fridge No More, Gorillas, Joker, many more promising 15-minute delivery and no or low fees. The Journal recently reporting that they lose $20 per order on average. And surprise, surprise, many are now going out of business. Fridge No More and Buy K have both shuttered operations. There's also reportedly a Russia connection as both companies have raised money from Russian investors that now seems to have dried up. Although, John, that could also be 
a convenient excuse. Probably more likely is that the big are getting bigger. There's also kind of big tech in gig economy and DoorDash, as well as some of the private names are really taking up the market share in this spot. You, you can stretch too far with those delivery promises if you don't have the logistics network set up to support yeah. it. Cosmo.com. You remember that one? 25 years ago, promising <laughs> quick delivery burned out. Yeah, long time ago. Uh, anyway, that will do it for Tech Check. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.